Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, once again, just as I left off last week in that, we'll be talking more about eschatology, and Lord willing, uh, we might, it might finish it off today. I started something else, but we'll, we'll see as, uh, <laughs> where, where we're at when, when the time comes up. Uh, main things I just kind of want to recap you know, most importantly is this is not an issue to, like, divide divide brethren over, you know, to, to split fellowship over just because, you know, someone believes different things on, you know, end time matters. As long as it, as long as a, you know, first of all, do believe, you know, in the, de- in the true death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that he is going to return again, and that he is the son of God, right? But it's in the eschatology that, you know, he, he is going to come again. But with that being said, at the same time, there's many throughout the church that consider, well, why even, you know, why even really have much, you know, to do about these matters since there's so much disagreement. You know, and it would almost seem that it's, uh, you'd almost think to the average person, especially if they're, they're new to the faith, that you would almost think that, well, geez, how can we really know? Even though the Bible says we can, I mean, you know, can we have the scriptures, and we know that no scriptures are there by accident, why is it that there's so much disagreement on it? And I think sometimes it very well could, I'm sure it is at times with people, because people I've talked to is, have you ever heard the term, you know, pan-millennial? Or, you know, it'll work out, it'll pan out in the end, you know. In other words, it doesn't really matter, and they don't really want to, you know, discuss the issue. But, I want to do this that I said mainly, I think it's not saying everyone means to do this, but I think it's a disservice to the Lord without taking the time, just as we would with any other doctrine. You know, let me back up for a second. We always say what matters is the fundamentals, but you can grab five different people and ask them their idea of what's fundamental may be a little different. So but what is fundamental is we know this word is the word of God. It is truth, right? And we know that by studying it, there's a lot that the Lord gave us, one, for practicality and how to live out our lives. And there's a lot he gave us to also increase our knowledge of him. And by those things, right, it'll influence the way we act, the way we think, and the way we think guides and directs the way we act. Right, but with that being said, when you talk about the three positions, a millennial, meaning there's no millennium. Right now, we're just waiting for Christ's return, the eternal state, right? Things are going to just keep getting worse and worse leading up to his return. That's basically the a-mill position. Post-mill, well, we're in the millennium now. It's just a period of time, and 
the world's going to become more and more Christianized until it's until the majority is Christianized, then the Lord will return and the eternal state starts. Premillennial, the Lord is going to return. Then, after the glorification of believers and that, and he sets up his earthly reign, then we have that for a thousand years or a long period of time. The only two differences, I mean, it's clear from Scripture there. And then the eternal state, and then after the eternal state, the one final rebellion immediately put down by Christ, and then the eternal state. So those are the three differences. And we talked, we, we talked a lot about, you know, we could really, really get in depth and deal with every single one of the points and everything, but we've gone over a lot. But just to kind of remind people that Emil, they also teach so, well, they all come down, to, they, they both positions do something rather radical with Revelation 20. And that is, they'll, uh, the, the, one, the one group says, well, they both say, right, it's not literal. It was referring to time past. You know, and when we read Revelation 20, clearly speaking of, and, and it's it just clear that he'll return, Satan will be bound with a chain on him, his power will be taken away, he will not be able to influence on the earth. Well, they'll say, well, no, he just meant his power was greatly reduced. Was greatly reduced, and that's, uh, that's A. Mills, and really a Pulse Mills position, but, you know, in various ways, but, and then he's going to return and set up the state, but Revelation 20 sets it all clear, his power is diminished. And once after the millennial reign, he'll be released, and there'll be a lot of, you know, Unregenerate, the unregenerate on the earth will all follow him, and he'll put down the rebellion immediately, and then and then we'll have the great judgment, and then then the lake of fire. But uh, I just want to mention that you know we talked a lot, and just for those watching or if you haven't written down, the the scriptures that plainly would dispute that to great degree. Okay, would be Acts 5.3, which talks that Satan influenced Ananias and Sapphira to such a degree that they lied to God. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, and Ephesians 6.12, and 1 Timothy 4.1, and 1 Peter 5.8 and 9, and of course all of Revelation 20 would greatly dispute that because it, it all shows, well, Revelation 20 shows his power is taken away, but all the other verses clearly demonstrate to us that he has power right now, and actually we're fighting it. We're fighting against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. Well, if he's been bound up, in, uh, it just, to me in that, it, it just actually makes no literary sense. It makes no logical sense. And God meant scriptures to make lo to help us logically figure things out. Another thing that speaks against both a mill and post mill positions is that not only do they allegorize Revelation twenty and have it say something it doesn't say, we as pre mills take that when it's read clearly, it is the 
it finally is the only position that makes sense of all the Old Testament verses, which we looked at many. Psalm 72, 8 through 14, Isaiah 11, 6 through 11, Isaiah 65, verse 20, and Zechariah 14, 5 through 21, and Revelation 2, 26 and 27. If you recall, if you go back and you and you, you look, since we've recorded all of these, you'll see we've talked about all those. And all of those talk, all the ones in the Old Testament talk about a time where Jesus, the Lord, will be reigning physically on earth. There'll be a time of great righteousness, great knowledge of the Lord pouring out, right? Longevity of life, but there'll still be death. There'll still be the curse, right? There'll still be sin. We've, but short of the eternal state. But there'll still be those things. The eternal state, there's none of those things. So all those things, pre-mill is the only position that makes sense of them. Now, so why is it when I say that the other scriptures, for some reason, I don't know why these, why people that disagree with premillennialism, they seem very hung up with Revelation 20. They got to dismiss it. I hear both sides. I, I look into this a lot, and the best teachers on both sides do their utmost to discredit Revelation 20. And from historically speaking, they have to go at the time, because Revelation 20 was written with history would show us, and the greatest historical evidence shows us it was written in the 90s AD. They say it was written before the destruction of Jerusalem. Why? Because if it was written after the destruction of Jerusalem, their entire system of theology, the way they look at eschatology, is destroyed. So if you're sitting there and trying to dismiss the historical evidence in order then to make Revelation 20 dismiss it, when its clear teaching backs up and is the only teaching that defends and makes sense of all the Old Testament scriptures about Christ reigning physically on the earth, but, but not in a blessed eternal state, I'd say you got a problem. Now, what I would say, how is this important? Well, when I talked before, all this all links in. If we understand that, one, the Lord is going to return, and then we I talked about Luke 19. We looked at that before, too, when I was preaching on it, but it shows us that as we're waiting for his return, he has commanded us, he expected us, he's gifted us, Right, and moved us on to serve him to the best of our understanding, the best of our strength and our knowledge with all our hearts, minds, and souls and strength until his return. That's one thing. The other thing that understand the pre-mill perspective that there'll be that thousand-year reign. Both sides will say, well, right, the question comes, why? And we might ask ourselves that. I have in the past. Why? Well, you could ask the same question. Why has it been 2,000 years since his return? Why? Because that's God's will. That's God's plan. He's works it out. He's the one with all wisdom and all knowledge and all understanding and all power. We're not. But it's perfect. It's a perfect plan. But another thing, too, where people don't understand when he, by him setting up a 1,000-year reign, by there being a rebellion afterwards, even though Christ himself, along with his saints, have been reigning, and the knowledge of the Lord is great on the earth, 
There'll still be a rebellion. But what does all those things do when he, he restores everything? He vindicates his original creation. It's the only teaching that allows the Lord to do that. You think of whether he restores Jerusalem, he fills all the, all the land promises, he fills all the original mandates and purposes that he had, knowing that it was never a plan B, but it's a plan A. It's the only system, premillennialism, historic premillennialism, that does that. It shows there's, there's no more, you know, sins all blamed on the devil. No, sin is there because man chose to disobey God. And now we were in the sin nature, but in the beginning they weren't. But remember when God made everything, he made it good. Everything he made, then we're told he made it very good. And then the last thing on the seventh day, he rested. He saw that everything he made was very good. So he's going to vindicate himself. Remember, creation itself is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. But as we talk about it, I don't want to go back over, over everything which, uh, you know, talks about the view, but the two main views that bother me the most, and I would say have a, that they're just not corroborated, they're not backed up by any clear teaching in Scripture at all. And so they got to be called into question. First of all, and the main thing, for amillennialism to be right, then Satan is bound, his power has been greatly, greatly reduced, and he's not deceiving the nations anymore. We've already looked, that is, not, that is not true. That is plainly not true from all the New Testament passages that tell us that we are presently battling Satan along with our own flesh, along with the world, right? We are battling Satan and principalities and powers to this very day. And the scriptures are plain about that. And, and Revelation 20 is plain about that that power is taken away. And it's diminished. He has no power because he has no power because the moment he is released after the, after the millennial reign, it shows that he draws all the unregenerate in the world to rebel one last time against God. So it just shows that, that there's no clear teaching on, on, backing, on backing that up. Right? So if their premise, if their original premise is wrong, then the rest of their teaching, it, it, it falls apart with that. Well, that's one of, their, that's one of their, their big models. The other one we'll look at in a minute because they, they both come at the pre-mills because of that. The other thing about, about post-mill, and we looked at this, but I want to talk about this. This one bothers me because it says that we have a mandate to take over society, and Scripture shows that we will do so if we just understand it. That's not backed up anywhere in Scripture. But if you would, go to Matthew chapter 7. We'll just look at others. We talked about this before, but I want to make this clear why this kind of bothers me and how I think people could get a misunderstanding of it. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we as Christians are supposed to be witnesses in the world, right? We stand for truth. It's okay. We're allowed to be in front of politics, right? But in all society, whatever level we're at, we're supposed to speak truth. Right? Preach the gospel and speak truth and stand against unrighteousness. But that does not mean a mandate to, to, to Christianize the world. We preach the gospel. What, how they receive it and who receives it is all up to God. Not up to us. But let's say a scripture even remotely 
seems to have that view that that society will be there when he returns. Remember, the whole thing is, right, that we'll Christianize the world. The world will basically, whether the majority will be saved, but the ones that aren't saved are out, will be, you know, will be following God's law. That's, uh, that's what they teach. Okay, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now, of course, it doesn't mean, you know, there are just ten people in the world. You know, if one became a Christian, nine didn't. Well, that's few and many, but the many, right? The many will go the broad way to destruction. The few will go, will come to Jesus Christ, will come to the narrow way. This is, there's no other way to interpret that. That's that's very well, and if you read on there too, it even says there's many that'll say that'll that'll say Lord, Lord to him on that day of judgment. And he'll say, I never knew you. So there's even a lot that call themselves Christians that are not Christians, because it's very clear earlier. That's why he's just backing that up. He says, Many go the wrong way, few go the right way, few come in and find Jesus and follow him. But if you also go to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, I'll read verse 7 first, right? And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? Right? First of all, we're being so victorious and everything, there's all these things, why are we crying day and night unto him? But, but more importantly, verse 8. I tell you that he will avenge them speedy. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Shall he? And then, don't turn there, but also keep in mind a big one, because we talk about a lot in this, and I can see everyone in here is really good with Scripture, but when you listen on, when you read First Thessalonians 4, and the reason he, he gave that was to encourage people about those that have died in the Lord, don't worry when the Lord returns, they're saved, you know, they're, they're still saved, they'll be resurrected too. But you notice the implication in there when Paul says in the middle of 1 Thessalonians 4, I believe it's uh, verse 15, verse 15 or 16, but that then those of us that are left, the implication very, very clear there, they're Probably won't be many left. Many will have died. Many will have died. He says, "Those are the dead first arise, then those of us that are left, that are still here." But that—that's not so clear. But that's how I read it when I read the rest of the scripture. Go to First John chapter five. And I've heard these before, but these are really important when you're dealing with this idea that you know will that. Truly, the world will be Christianized, then the Lord will return. 1 John 5, verse 19. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. With those things, and when understanding, and when understanding all of other scripture, when I when I talked about saying that we're battling against, you know, 
demonic powers even now to this present day. And it, it shows actually that the generality of it is, and history shows us our whole life of the church, and even in the Old Testament, that though there are victories, right, the kingdom of God, according we talk about that in the terrors, right, and that his power is he will save all his elect. And, and the gospel will keep going forth, right, and it will save those that have been called to salvation. All his people will be saved. All his people will be saved. And those verses, and we looked at that, if you remember in the, in the verses of they want to take the parables in Matthew 13 and turn the first two into societal regeneration and societal following God when all, all of them talk about a personal, right, receiving of the word and those that do receive it, they grow in faith. They find it to be valuable. It's the richest thing in their life. And then at the end, the one about the dragnet, those that came to faith, right, on that last day, the kingdom of God, the children of the kingdom and the children of the devil will be separated. The, you can't read a couple some way and a couple another way, right? you got to read them all in the same context. So we just see that scripture itself doesn't, you know, doesn't back that up. But I wanted to talk about, because we talked about that a lot, but I want to go the one way where they both come against those of us that are premillennial. And that is they'll say, well, who populates the millennium? Right? Because, and I can understand it, without the Old Testament scriptures, and especially Revelation 20, it would seem that the Lord returns, he severs the wicked from the just, and then should start the eternal state, right? The wicked are gone. But because those Old Testament, and Revelation 20 clarifies those Old Testament scriptures, we understand there is a time between it. But they'll say, well, you know, but all the wicked are destroyed. Doesn't say that. It does say he'll, he'll, he'll sever the wicked from the just, but remember, could there be a time in that? Could there be a time between him, him doing that? Revelation 20 clearly says there is. And other places in the scripture, it's the only way we can help to understand that how will, who is Christ ruling over the rod of iron, you know? Who is he striking during this millennial reign? During this reign that we've never seen but is short of the eternal state. Who are the saints, according to Revelation 2, 26 and 27, ruling over with the rod of iron. Other saints? Now they'll say, well, there's mortals. Well, let's look at that, because it's another thing, because they don't take Revelation 20 seriously. If you turn to Revelation 20, we'll see on that. And Revelation, uh, well, first of all, actually, excuse me, Revelation 19. And I want to read a little bit here, because it is a premillennialist view that Revelation 19 is the fulfillment of Zechariah 14. And we're going to take a look at this here. And it's where all scripture is relevant. Remember that. But Revelation 19, and we'll just, we'll just begin in verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. 
His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. None of his mouth gold a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Well, he'd already smote them. But then, after smiting them, does that mean everyone's destroyed? Because then he's going to rule them with a rod of iron. There's one thing, I'm bringing this out because we're going to go right to Zechariah 14. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies, their armies, okay, not everyone on earth, gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and then that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant of the armies, right? And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls are filled with their flesh. Okay, keeping all that in mind, there's going to heard that. Go back to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. And I'll, I'll say this, not all of this is in Revelation 19 when I just read, but tell me if there's something that stick out in Scripture to you. I'll start first. Starting in verse 3. Well, first, <laughs> yeah, verse 3. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day. What day? We know, going back, Matthew 24, in corresponding verses, right? On a day he returns in judgment, the day our Lord Jesus Christ returns, right? His feet shall stand on that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. Half of the mountain shall remove toward the south, and half of it toward the, uh, half of it toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Oh, well, we see that fulfilled, right? And Jesus just repeats that. It's the fulfillment of his return. You know, you see that cl so clearly in Matthew 24. Okay, and just drop down, you know, I'm going to read all this for the sake of time, because drop down to the, to the last part of verse 5. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. Okay, now, there is a discussion within the pre-mill camp, you know, I mean, you, you know, is this, uh, is this talking about holy angels? Is this talking about saints that, you know, is, is there a rapture before he returns sometime before he returns in that. And a little of that, in a sense, is irrelevant, okay? Because the main point is they say there's no millennium. They say that, right, everyone's, everyone's judged and then starts the eternal state. 
Well, now, see, Scripture says no. Scripture says no. It backs up the premillennial view. And it's the only one that gives proper credit to the Old Testament prophecies. The other two do not. They allegorize them away. Okay. And so, if you remember when we were in Revelation 19, right? And he said, right, just as I read right there, and the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. Revelation 19, 14, and the armies that are in heaven followed him upon white horses, cold and fine linen, white and clean. Well, so the holy ones are with him. The saints are with him. Okay, and then, and then there's the battle. But for sake of time, I just want to go to verse... So the Lord smites them with the plague, right? The armies, the armies that have been gathered together out of all the nations on the earth and these rulers, right? Go to verse 16. And it shall come to pass that is that everyone that is left of all the nations, now remember the nations decided they gathered out of all the nations various people and they raised armies. Not everyone in every nation went to go fight. Their armies went and fought. Okay. But other than the left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem and worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague, wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles." This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And in that day there shall be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. All this is keeping up with the prophecy. Zechariah 14 perfectly goes together to Revelation 19, and it talks there clearly that there are going to be even those left, that they're not saints, right? They're left of after the Lord returns. He destroys the armies that came up against him. But remember, armies, and nowhere in Scripture is armies determinative are meant to mean the entire nation. Right? He destroys the armies. Then there's people left, and they're the ones Then will go on into that thousand-year reign, and there will be unregenerate people still on earth. But, of course, people will outwardly serve the Lord, and outwardly honor his name, which, in a sense, sometimes goes, up, goes on here now, but there'll be no influence from sat the satanic realm. There'll be no influence in that time from the satanic realm. As soon as his influence is allowed, again, and permitted, he's going to raise up a large amount of people on the earth, and they're going to come up against, and the Lord will destroy him. And that's what also gives great credence, right, to, to the rest of Revelation 20, because you can't, you know, you can't just allegorize away or spiritualize away Revelation 21 through 7, right? And then what do you do with 8 through the rest of the chapter? Read that literally? But it just, it just plainly shows us that there, there's coming a time after his return you know, that we, we will be serving with him, reigning with him, 
on earth. And part of that reigning over him in that is we can't, we can't imagine, but that, that time will be there. We'll be glorified from on high. And I love the way John MacArthur put it one time. He says, you know, as it says in Scripture, right, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, you know, nor has entered in the heart of man what God has prepared for those that love him. And, of course, you know, we love him because he first loved us. He says, we do not know what we will be. It's not according to the way some have twisted this doctrine in the little God's doctrine. We do not become gods, but we will still be created beings, but we will be the most glorified, holy, righteous created beings as close to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ as a created being could be, we will be. And that gives me hope. And that's really the only one also, which, again, the premillennial view just gives credence to all of Scripture. Are, are we told everything that we'll be doing during the millennial reign? No. No Scripture says that. But everything leading up to it, it answers all the questions. It's the only one that answers all the questions. When you're dealing with it and all the Scriptures that talk about it, right, it doesn't actually leave anything unanswered. The other views dismiss parts of Scripture, or they allegorize them away. And neither one of them has clear teaching that's, well, they'll say it's clear teaching, but then it runs up against the clear teaching, for instance, in Revelation 20, or the clear teaching in all those Old Testament passages we just read. There is a time, according to the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, that the, that the, that the Lord will reign physically, physically on the earth, on his throne, in Jerusalem. His saints will serve him and reign with him, and they'll be unredeemed. The only position that answers that is the pre-mill position. That's why I say, and why is it important too? Well, also it helps us to understand it gives God all the glory. And it, it answers that God is the only one who could save. It gives him absolute sovereignty, right? The, the, the church is not going to accomplish something that Scripture gives solely to the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been given the honor to judge, just as he's been given the honor to save. He's been given that honor. And even though we're part of his body of that, we can't take that away. I mean, if we Christianize the whole world, what's he judging? I mean, when we read all those scriptures that talk about how will it be, and, and Mike's been going through Revelation, all of Revelation real well, what's the one thing we see? What's the one thing we've seen in all of history? We've seen advances in the gospel, right? We continually see people saved. Now, I'm not going to put a number on those like some of them do because we know that there's been a lot of false professions, but they're still legitimately, I mean, Mike, Dean, everyone's sitting here has been saved in this generation. There may be more generations to come, but at one time it'll stop. He's going to return. But when they talk about Christianizing society, look at it, except for some moments, all the apostles are put to death, except John. They tried to. They burned him in oil, but God kept him alive. He was supposed to write Revelation, right? You know, give us the final piece of the puzzle, so to speak, right? But you look, at, you look at all the original. You look at the persecution. You look at the greatest worldwide revival that God's showing us, 
you know, since when he first came, since the beginning of the church, there was Reformation. What was countered with that? For 200 years, especially the first 100 years in that, approximately 2 million Protestants were murdered by the Roman Catholic Church and corrupt government leaders. And they cheered it. I don't see any evidence of that. And this history shows, he, even those, you look at that, I mean, you know, you know Jonathan Edwards has run out of his own church? Anyway, I'll just say that there, there's been, you may want something to be true. We may feel a certain way about a certain subject, but we must, as we do in every other area of doctrine, Right? Most people don't treat eschatology like they do every other area of doctrine. I have brothers that I love. I do not question the sincerity of their faith. That it's very apparent to me that they don't give the same measure of systematically studying the scriptures to eschatology as they do the rest of the scripture. Because I'll be honest with you, I'm not trying to bash them but I cannot understand the other views. I do not understand them. Not if you take all what Scripture says about it to bear. The pre-mill position, it's obvious. Again, I just can't say it enough. It is the one that gives credence to Revelation 20 being true and being clear. It gives credence. It answers Zechariah 14. It answers Isaiah 11. It answers Isaiah 65. In other places, too, Psalm 72, it answers all those Old Testament prophecies. The other sides do not. They just don't. They can't, right? The, the, in either of their views, either there is no millennium, right? He's just going to return, judge everybody, the eternal state, which we see. There's many other scriptures besides Revelation 20, which clearly says that's not the case, but all the kinds of Old Testament scriptures says that's not the case. It clearly teaches that, clearly. Unless you just want to dismiss it, they'll say, going back to tights and shadows, worshiping God, him being on his throne, and then people coming to worship him, that's tights and shadows? No, that's the way it is. <laughs> It'll be on earth as it is in heaven. Guarantee he's being worshiped in heaven by everyone there. But they'll say, you know, the practicality of this. It just, it gives honor because it shows one, as I was saying before, to think of this, that as we sit, you know, I, I used to say this before a lot, and I still mean this in eschatology, as long as you're walking with the Lord and serving him, right? Because you can believe correctly about the end times, and if you're not serving him, you know, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, yes, we're weak, we're imperfect and everything, right? But that isn't what your striving goal is. you got a problem. That's what he wants from us. You could say, right, the, us being continually transformed more and more into the image of Christ. But when you, but also the reason it's important, I look at that in premillennialism, says glory be to God. He's going to vindicate his creation. Premillennialism is the only one that does that. Right? It vindicates everything about him, and it also vindicates, see, you can't just blame the devil, right? Man is sin. The problem with sin, man is selfishness when it comes down to it, right? It is selfishness. But it vindicates them in everything. When you really look at it and you consider everything, that's the most important view, right? Because he didn't give us any of scripture, just this filler, 
You know, we've talked about that before. All, all us elders here have, right? None of, none of, none of Scripture is filler. So we got to take it all, and just because one part of Scripture might mess up our preconceived beliefs about something, we must say, we must be humble enough to say, I was wrong. And I'll just, you know, leave it at that, not wanting to say that, you know, it's not a reason to divide over, but I sit here as somebody that can say, with examining all the scripture and listening to several of their top teachers on both, on both aisles of both the other positions, and I can honestly say I do not have one iota of doubt that premillennialism, as what was predominantly believed in the first few hundred years, predominantly, is the correct view. And it, and, it, and it gives God all the glory that the scriptures give him without diminishing it at all. And I'm not saying there's other people mean, mean to do so, but it does diminish the meaning of many scriptures. It, it just, it, ha it has to, you're, you're dismissing other things. So just keeping that in mind and keeping everything, right, when we study eschatology, it's like anything else. We take all, all Scripture takes to bear on a matter, right? We wouldn't leave it out. And those people that want to say, well, it's only talked about in Revelation 20, yeah, we're given the specifics in Revelation 20. But when they say it just said once, well, anyone else know somewhere besides Genesis 11 that tells us about the Tower of Babel? Mention anywhere else that you know of? I believe it, though, because the Bible says it. But, again, just saying we, we showed through that that the Holy Spirit's, you know, through John let us know something, right? No, no, there definitely a thousand years is real. You know, this long period of time or exactly a thousand years either way, right? It's our own number. It's real. And that's the way. And we can look forward to knowing that God will fulfill all his will. And just like he tells us elsewhere in Scripture, we can rest in him. Right? Our duty is to serve him, serve him with all we have. And, you know, that's, that's why I bring it up. With that, uh, we got to close, but does anyone have any comments or any questions? Feel free. <laughs> Well, with that, let's close it a word of prayer.